0: The Chemistry
1: And welcome to episode four of the Counterforce podcast. I'm your host, Aug Stone. We were just listening to a bit of Buckminster Fullerene, the first song on the new paper note Cambridge album, Outstairs, Instairs, which is coming out June 29th. Today I'm talking to the man behind the paper note world, Mr. Ian Button. Ian's worked with a ton of people. He was in Death in Vegas. He was asked to join the Sisters of Mercy twice. He recently recorded the new Go-Kart Mozart album. And he's worked with Dot Allison, Darren Heyman, and a whole bunch of other people. Today, we'll be talking about all that. I first heard Paper Nut Cambridge after their first album, Cambridge Nutflake, came out in 2013. My friend, the poet Kevin Reinhardt, made me this awesome mix CD, which started off with P.P. Arnold's Everything's Gonna Be Alright, and then it went into Paper Nut Cambridge's Aphrodisiac, and I was floored by that song. It reminded me of classic Mary Chain, who were my favorite band throughout all my teenage years. Uh, Then in 2014, I reviewed the second Paper Nut album, There's No Underground for The Quietest. It's a really great laid back rock and roll record with lots of glam elements as well. Just really great songs and melodies. So I've kept up with Mr. Button's work ever since. And it was a pleasure to talk to him
2: for The Counterforce.
1: Tell me about falling in love with music when you were a kid.
2: Ah, well, it happened, I guess, when I was pretty young. I've I've got an older sister who's, who's nine years older than me. Plus, my dad used to be a musician as well, so there was lots of music very early on uh, in the house. And the first records I fell in love with were the, with sort of mid-60s, late-60s singles by people like The Move. My sister was buying Motown and The Monkees and stuff like that, The Beatles. And then I think when I was about f- maybe five or six, I started to sort of ask for records that I, that I wanted to have you know so and this would have been about 1967-68 and so uh, my sister used to take me to the record shop in our high street on my mum or dad and I I remember getting things like um See Emily Play, Pink Floyd and I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night, The Electric Prunes so it was one of the ones that I liked and I I, I sort of liked the, the sort of atmosphere that those records had I didn't know obviously didn't know what what, what it was about them at the time but the kind of echoey, you know, sort of they were diff- They weren't really like the Beatles' records. I, di- I didn't think they was different. They were different in some way, and they had this sort of this strangeness about them. Well, obviously, at the time, I didn't know what what it was or what they were doing or what in- what instruments were doing it or anything. And I used to be fascinated by. It. There's the B side of, of "I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night." It's called "Loving," and it's a it's just a blues song, but it's really it's really echoing really. You know, very, very strange. I used to, used to go up to the museums in London with my, my, my dad or my mum and dad at the weekends. And there's a tunnel when you walk from South Kensington along to the uh, Natural History Museum and the Science Museum. And I used to love it in there. And I used to love this, this sort of echoey sound of everything in there. And I somehow made this connection between that and, and, and records fairly early on, I guess. So
1: were you a Beatles fan?
2: Well, I did like, I've always, I've always liked the Beatles and I think they're one of those bands that you, you, you kind of, you can't escape from them really. I, I didn't actually own any of their records for many, many years, you know, until I was grown up, but that you, I just knew, I knew them, you know, and i like to say, my sister was buying them and you just heard them everywhere. And I, yeah, I mean, I loved, I think I probably first heard the the, the later Beatles, it would have been this, this, you know, sort of Penny Lane, Hello, Goodbye, they were probably the first things I heard. And I think my sister had with the Beatles. It's a fairly early one. But I think they grabbed my imagination a bit more a bit, a bit later on.
1: So th- this period is what you revisited with the Paper Nut Nutlets covers album?
2: Yes, I get, yeah. So that, that although I say lots of the things on Nutlets, I, I probably didn't know at the time. So, I mean, I didn't know the casuals and stuff like that at the time. And I, perhaps I, you know, I didn't do some of the more obvious ones the ones I just mentioned, I, you know, I somehow didn't decide not to do anything like that for Nutlets. I can't think what the reasons were why why I chose the ones I did for that. But um, but yes, in a way, it was that it's that period followed by the period of me being, you know, 10, 11, 12, you know, g- getting into the more early 70s stuff.
1: I, I love your cover of Jessamine off that.
2: Ah, thanks. Yeah, well, that's it's, it's an amazing song. And, I, and again, something that I didn't hear till many years after it was out.
1: How did you feel
2: about glam and punk when they came along? Uh, yeah, I was fully on, fully up with with glam rock. i say I was I was at, at senior school by then. Well, so I, well, I guess early glam rock. I was still still junior school. So so, um, Mark Boland was the first one to catch my ear in a big way. Followed by David Bowie, I guess. So I, lo- I loved all of that, and and then later on things things like Cockney Rebel and Roxy Music. You know, I kind of I guess they're in the same the same ballpark, a slightly a slightly I don't know a slightly sort of darker kind of. Mm. I think they are perhaps not so showy and, and but something did something different about them. I mean, I loved Cockney Rebel. I, I remember, I guess it's nineteen seventy four is the year. I, I it was when Capital Radio in London had just started, and I used to listen to it before I went to school in the morning. And there used to be this brilliant run of records that you, I would hope would be on, and usually there'd be two, or, two or three of them would be on, of a morning. And one of them was was. Uh, this town ain't big enough for both of us. By Sparks. Another one was Judy Teen by Cockney Rebel. There were Seven Seas of Rye by Queen, which I kind of loved as well. Yeah, there was a whole load of stuff that year that I think I, that I really was was captivated by.
1: Tumbling Down is one of my favourite songs of all time. I think that's just a gorgeous yeah. song,
2: fantastic song. And he's he's. I mean, I think a lot of people say that he's in the kind of reassessment of glam rock that's kind of happened. You know, probably several times over the decades, he's sort of neglected in a way, Steve Harley, because he does he doesn't really get so much of the adulation that 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 perhaps the others get. You know, and I think re, I think they're reissuing the albums this year. This this year, I read about those the the two um, the first two Courtney Rebel albums. So I don't know what kind of tr- treatment they're going to get or format they're going to get. But a friend of mine showed me the Roxy Music box set thing for their the first album that, that's just been redone. You know. Obviously oh, something that i I covered it, but we'll never we'll never get it.
1: <laughs> what about punk rock?
2: Uh yes, well punk rock when that sort of hit, I was still I was still firmly into, you know, possibly the tail end of glam, but also lots of prog stuff. I got I got into um lots of progressive stuff in the the kind of mid seventies. So um Yes and Genesis and King Crimson and Peter Hamill, Vandagraft Generator, and I was I I loved all that. And, of course, uh, in in the midst of that came came punk. But I, I used to listen to a radio show on Saturday afternoons with Alan Freeman. He was a, my favourite sort of radio programme at the time. And so he used to play loads of prog stuff, and that's, that's where I would get to hear that. But he also played the first punk record that I heard, which was The Saints, called Erotic Neurotic. And he announced it in this brilliant voice. He's got, you know, he's got this little right now, pop because of uh, erotic, neurotic the and And... Uh, I thought it was great and I, and it sort of, I don't know if I'd even heard like the Stooges or anything at the by that point, but I like, you know, I liked, I liked the Saints like I was hearing about punk rock and I, but I think they, I think I heard them first before I heard anything by the major British, uh, punk players. And I think I heard the Lurkers. There was a free single, um, which I've just recently bought again, actually shadow by the Lurkers. And I had a friend at school who, who um, got really into it very early and had the records and the fanzines and would bring them into school for us to see. But I mean, I was, I was a little bit, I suppose I was a little bit scared and wary of, of it. I didn't really know what, what I was going to make of it. And I'd heard a lot about it before I'd heard any, any music. So there was, um, you know, there was lots of newsworthy stuff going on. There was, a, there was a sort of an urban myth that there was a gang of punks that were going around to every school in uh, South London with razors and that they would, you know, they would ask you if you were a punk or not, and if you said if you said you weren't, they would they would cut you with a razor, and if you said you were, they would still cut you with a razor. <laughs> and because they never came to ask, school. we didn't know, we, you know, I don't know if they if they actually existed. And it, when I, when I heard the Sex Pistols, I was kind of sort of pleasantly surprised, <laughs> pleasantly surprised. It wasn't it wasn't as sort of I thought it was. I was expecting it was going to be something so incredibly. You know, different and awful and horrible and you know, un- unfathomable or unlistenable. But it wasn't. It was. It was a great sounding, you know, rock and roll record with the tune and everything. And I kind of liked it. And I heard the Clash's first album as well. Again, from 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 friends at school. We brought them in. We used to swap records a lot. Yeah, I. Th- I uh, you know, I suddenly I thought, oh, okay. I know. I've got the measure of this now. And I know what it, I know what it is. And I think, in a way, the, ba- the bands that, that kind of shocked me more were the, were the, were the post-punk ones, the, the people that came along and did something very, very different, you know, because, you know, I think punk is still, it's still kind of pop and, and, uh, and rock and roll, albeit done with a different uh, attitude and different clothes or whatever. But it was things like the pop group first album, which I still think is one of the most stunning records that ever, has ever been, ever been made. The sort of combination of the freak out jazz and things, but with the, the dub elements in there as well. And but then there's these real beautiful moments in it too, which I'm thinking, what you know, how how the hell did they come up with that or capture that 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 moment? And I guess the spirit that in the spirit of of what I thought punk was about, it's the, it was people like the four and, and things like that that would that would that would perhaps encapsulate it more for me. The, the people who really didn't care in the best sense of the word, they really didn't care what they, you know, they didn't care about production values or they didn't care about dressing right or anything like that. And they just did their thing. And I think it took the, it took the first wave of it, you know, the first wave, which, which I was aware of, which is the kind of, you know, it's slightly manufactured all of it. You know, the, 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 the whole sex pistols thing and the clash and the style and the, and the, and I'm always aware, you know, the, the fact that the Pistols for all of the, you know, antagonism and stuff, they they got Chris Thomas to, to make their record who who's had a track record of, you know, going back to the to the Beatles. You know, he's on he's on Beatles records. And so they knew that they still had to make a record that, that was sort of a commercial commercially good sounding record. And great, it's a great record. But I think that if it's it was still out of the reach of, of, of people or me and my me and my friends who were in a band, you know, we were never going to make a record that sounded like the Sex Pistols. We had no, had no way of ever doing that. But we, when we started playing, we did sort of sound a bit like the Fall, and we did, you know, it's you could sort of you could sound like that, and you could you could emulate the kind of things that those people were doing. And Joy Division, of course, was a big big for us, me and my friends, and sort of at the time that we were sort of learning to play instruments and and you know listening to a band like that who who really were kind of playing them very differently to how i you know how i thought guitars or bass guitars were played in bands i'd never really heard anybody play in a sort of deconstructed way like peter hook's bass lines or, or Sumner's guitar parts they're, they're not i'd i'd been learning how to play chords for the last sort of five or six years before that strumming along you know to to, to bowie but then you suddenly hear someone who's only playing something on one string, and then and the bass is doing something that completely fits with that differently, and it's not. They wouldn't work you, sitting on your own in your bedroom playing something on one string doesn't work. But if, if it's if it's part of a four-piece band and it all you know it sounds great, and Martin Hannett's producing it, you know that was it was a real eye-opener to hear hear music like that for me.
1: So when did you start playing?
2: Started playing. Well, I, I, I learned to play drums when I was very young because my dad taught me a little bit to play. Your dad's a
0: drummer?
2: He was a drummer, yeah, yeah. jazz, um, sort of big band jazz he, he liked. But by the time I was born, he'd stopped playing. He'd stopped uh, going out and playing live. But yeah, so he he sort of taught me a bit of drumming. But then when I got to about 12, I decided I wanted to learn guitar. guitar. So me and uh, one of my best friends at school, Jeremy, decided to have guitarist joint folk guitar lessons with this guy who would come to the uh teach us after school and we learned a little bit of guitar tab and then the next step from that was that was to get an electric guitar so i would think i must have been about 16 something and got my first electric guitar and we formed a band at school with some friends and we we played um, a, a 24-hour jam session sponsored jam session that our school did which was the first first gig we did and we did all covers because we hadn't really written anything yet, we just did. We did Bowie and Stooges and stuff like that.
1: Was there a moment where you knew you wanted to play the guitar?
2: Well, no, I don't know. I can't remember what the what the the thing was that made me decide I wanted to have lessons or I wanted to have it take it up take it up properly. I can't really remember. There is, I don't think there's a particular you know record I heard or anything that made me go, yes, I'm going to do that. But David Bowie was was my learning. I had a songbook and was, was was trying to teach myself, you know, how to play loads of those songs. And I quickly realised that the songbook isn't really telling you how the guitar parts go on those records. That was a, a sort of a leap that I had to make, you know, to to go to look at the chords and think, okay, well, I know what that is, and then listen to the record and think, okay, well, I can hear that he's doing something that's not those chords, but it, but it gave me a clue, you know, and that is how I tried to work, work things out. But no, I don't think there was a, there wasn't a sort of an epiphany, I don't think, it was just a gradual thing. And then once I started to play and to have have bands, and it's just never, never, never really stopped.
1: <laughs> what was your first band called?
2: We were called the Forces Sweethearts. We like Vera Lynn was was called the Forces Sweetheart. Cool.
1: T- tell me about your involvement with the Sisters of Mercy.
2: Ah, yeah. Well, that's I, I tell that story, you know, quite quite often. But, um I went to university at Leeds, and I was doing French and Latin while like, this was in 1980. I went there. And while I was there, I, I got into a couple of bands playing drums. One band was a rockabilly band, and I did a couple of gigs with them in a pub garden, I, I think it was, and it's near near where the university was. And then I was aware of all the the, the other people that were around who were musicians and uh, in Leeds or whatever. And um, and then one day I got a phone call from one of one of the Sisters of Mercy, which I, th- I think it must have been Craig. He, he rang up and he said, we've seen you play drums with this, this rockabilly band. And they said, well, can you come round and uh, meet us? Because we think we might be trying to get a drummer, you know. So I went round, I met him and Andrew. They said, yeah, we, we think we're going we're gonna to get a, a, a real drummer. And they said, you know, do you, would you be interested in doing it? And they said, we're going to be going on tour in, uh, in, in the autumn with supporting the Psychedelic Furs, they said. And I loved the Psychedelic Furs at the time. And so I kind of said in principle, I said, "Well yeah, of course I'd, that would be great." And then then I went back home for the summer after that first my first year of uni, and I failed one of my exams, so I had to do a reset and uh, and then I ended up not going back. so by the time that summer was over, I'd made up my mind that I didn't really want to go back and keep studying because it was you know I thought it was going to be tough, and you know if the first year was was tough and I failed it, I thought, well I'll, I don't really want to do it. So anyway, I just I just didn't hear anything more from them, and uh, that was that was the end of that. And then I met them again years later when I was playing with Death in Vegas. I met Eldritch again, and they were they were looking for a, a guitarist at that point, like a backup, a second guitarist. And he asked me then again, you know, do you do, <laughs> do you want to come and do the guitar? And I couldn't do it because of because of Death in Vegas. I was too busy, so I've kind of been asked twice, but I still haven't done it. <laughs> Maybe next time he asked me, I might surprise him. <laughs> I often wonder what would have, what, you know, what my career trajectory would have been if I'd, if that, if that had happened, you know. Who knows?
1: My friends have a great Sisters of Mercy cover band called the Misters of Circe. What's <laughs> oh, C I
2: R C E? Circe. Yeah, brilliant. How did you get involved with Death in Vegas? Uh, well, that was um, through a friend. I met this guy, a guy called Steve Hellier, who uh, was going out with a friend of mine, and I knew that he was a he was a musician and he was a the DJ electric, you know, he was, he was releasing um, dance records. This is in the sort of very early '90s, and at the time, I was I had a project of my own called Motorcyclone, which was a band of you know of my my songs, and I had some friends playing in it. and Steve was the keyboard player in Motorcyclone, ended up being being the keyboard player in that band, and we did a few gigs. And then one time he said, "Oh, he said I've met this I've met this guy's DJ, and we're going to start a project together." Richard Fearless. And he said we're we're doing some recording, and he said we we want to get a bit of a, a guitar in it. We wanted we wanted to to kind of sample a you know a live guitar sample in it. So, so I, that's what I did. I went around and, and played and just played straight into a sampler, straight into the desk. I was just sort of jamming to a, to like a loop that they had, and uh, that's how it started. And that, that became like the first first Death in Vegas single it came from that, and uh, it just kind of grew from that. Grew from there, I, I played a bit more when the album tracks began to come together and then all of a sudden it was a band and the rest was, was, was sort of history, you know.
1: Motorcycling's a good name. Did you ever record
2: anything? Uh, yeah, there's a, I made a, a CD, which I pressed up, which I still got several boxes full of, <laughs> which I, I, may, I may or may not release at some point. But it's one of those things where I, I, you know, I like some of it, but some of it makes me, makes me cringe a bit. But, but the, the yeah, the, the CD was just me on my own. But then I, I got a band together to play, to play it live. What did it sound like? Kind of sounds like what I do now really you know it was it, it, the influences I think were the same I think they've all, you know they've always been the same they were sli- sort of slightly pastoral slightly psychedelic glammy sort of thing so
1: how did Paper Nut Cambridge come together
2: uh well it, it came because uh, I'd, be, I'd, I'd been doing I've been doing a little well actually for a while I hadn't hadn't done much of my own uh songwriting stuff because all through the kind of 90s I had this thing called the Anthony Anderson project, which was, that was basically an extension of, of what motorcyclone was. It was just me doing, doing home recordings. And and then there was a time when I was, I was sort of putting them up on the internet, you know, in the early days of the internet. And I did quite a lot of stuff. that then I, I kind of stopped because in, in, in about 2004, I started to do a lot of teaching work and I kind of didn't, didn't really do any music for a couple of years, two or three years, but then I'd been starting to do some, uh, some tracks again. And then I heard, um, from uh, darren Heyman, that he was looking for a track for like a calendar like an advent calendar thing for you know a christmas compilation release and did i have a, a track and so i kind of wrote one for it like a christmas song and i needed to have a name for the or i thought i decided i needed to have a name for the band or the act and so i'd i'd had this name paper not cambridge for a long time written down and that's that's when i said well, okay well it's the, th- that's what it is then and th- and then that became the basis of the first album. You know that 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 song followed by the other ones I've been working on. What was that song? That's uh, ninety three million and one. It's the first track on the first album.
1: Where where does the name come from?
2: Uh, it comes from a, a dream. I sort of wrote down. I mean, I've I've often done it. Is, is, is written down things that that you sort of wake up remembering from dreams. You know, and I I, I did, I've done it from on and off for many years. I had a dream once. A dream actually, I had the dream in about 1990 or 89 or something, and I dreamt that I was in America outside a gig where there were two bands playing, and one of them was called Paper Nut Cambridge, and the other one was called Elvis Breakdown, and that's all I remember about the dream. I don't because I don't, wasn't I wasn't in the gig. I was outside, so I got no idea what that what you know what they were like, and so I, I just had these names written down along with loads of other stuff. You know, from from uh, fragments of sentences and phrases and things and i thought well that's 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 quite a good name for a band so in, in in about 1996 i wrote a song called Paper Nut cambridge about that band which has subsequently appeared again as part of the first album package but i did a version of that song back then about this mythical band and that's how it started so it's so in a way that, that when i started seriously you know pursuing papernut cambridge there was this whole thing about oh well it's it might not be a real band it might just be us channeling some band and and so you know i didn't i didn't really sort of carry off the the analogy fully or, you know or 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 well enough really but there was there was a sort of an idea that perhaps we could sort of do anything because because it wasn't really uh you know and when when the, and the, when i got the live band of papernut cambridge together there was a sort of element of oh we're playing papernut cambridge songs but you know, they they could exist in in another form. You know, for all we know, there was that that kind of. Thing. But I think I think that it's gone beyond that now. Really, I don't think that conceit lasted. You know, lasted very long.
1: <laughs> I noticed on the second record, there did seem to be a whole mythology behind it, especially on "There's No Underground." There's the Paper Nut World.
2: Oh yeah, Paper Nut. World. see, but but then by that time, I mean, Paper Nut World is the suburban world where I live. That's that's kind of really what it is. That record was kind of. Quite specifically about where, where I live, the people that are—I guess I'm talking about—in that song. In a way, it's about people. It's about glam rock. It's about the. It's about the people who are from this area of South London. So you know, obviously you've obviously got Bowie, uh, but also the the punks like Susie and all that kind of selection of people, who sort of left the area, or you know, or did or did not leave the area. But they're there. So the idea of having these these people that are like they're from another planet, but they're actually they actually just live here. And that that was partly what I what I was trying to say in that one. But I, yes, I do have the sort of I've, I've written two or three songs which are kind of like anthems or theme songs for for the band Paper Not Cambridge. I know I admit that I've kind of done that. So there's there's one on on that album, and there's been another one where you it's like the sort of self mythologizing of, of of a band. Or but there's still an, ele- an element that it might not be us. <laughs> and you've used Elvis breakdown too, right? I just decided to turn that into a, into a song. Yeah. So there's, there's just, there's a song called I mean, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really say anything apart from those two words. Do you ever dream songs? Yes, I do. Not, not complete songs, but fragments. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's what, that's what a lot of the, the paper and stuff is, you know, as, as of the last sort of three or four years now, I've, I've got my, usually got my phone, you know, next to me. If I wake up and I've, and I record, Myself, sort of humming sleepily in, in, into the phone. Sometimes, if you wake up with a with a, a kind of an earworm that's, that's come from somewhere in, in in sleep, and I just try and try and try and just capture that. It was for um for the love of things your lover loves album was, was I had a load of those recordings, and that's that's how I got lots of the, the structure and, and bits and pieces for those songs is by by just getting all those into Logic all those little recordings and then sort of trying to play something along with them. Cause it was just my voice. And it's it's often quite hard to work out what melody I was trying to, trying to reproduce at that time in the morning. But then I would try, I would turn them into something. So, so very often it's just a tune, but sometimes it would be afraid words or phrases as well. I'd I'd write down. Wow. That's awesome.
1: So let's talk about the new record. When's it out?
2: Uh, it's out on the 29th of June, officially, um, and there's there's singles or digi- digital tracks are coming out, kind of one or two at a time. So I'm not I'm not going to release the the whole album. It's a digital album. It's going to be like seven seven singles or seven EPs once a month, one a one a month, so that eventually it will all be there with with extra tracks and whatever. But I just yeah, I just wanted to do something different with the sort of form of it, the formats of it because I think it's so, especially for di- digital for us, you know, it's such a tiny, you know, factor really. We don't really, you know, we don't really reach anybody at all digi- digitally. So I thought, well, I'll try and do, you know, try and do something a bit different. And I keep reading um, Lefsitz, is his name, Lefsitz? The Lefsitz Letter. He's a, he's like a, a commentator on on the music industry and everything. And he writes these, you know, these brilliant, they're brilliantly written articles and says some brilliant things, but it always feels like you're being slapped around the face for doing everything wrong when you you know, it's going, you know, he said, if you're releasing albums, why are you releasing albums? You know, you should just do individual songs for digital. Cause that's, that's, that's how it's configured, you know? And, uh, you know, if you're doing guitar music, you're finished and all this kind of thing. So as I'm do- obviously I'm doing lots of things wrong, but I thought maybe I'll try and do, do something, uh, a little bit right. So yes, it's, it's out on the, uh, at the end of this month officially.
1: On vinyl too?
2: Yeah. Vinyl and CD one side of the vinyl plays from the center of the record to the outside and the other the other side plays back in again.
1: <laughs> and that goes with the concept of the title. Yes. Yeah. So the title is upstairs in stairs, which comes from Buckminster Out- Fuller.
2: Outstairs in stairs. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he he said that strictly speaking, when you, when you're talking about going up and down stairs, you're actually going outwards from the center of the earth or inwards towards it so he said that's you should really be saying you know i'm just going upstairs or you know to the loo or whatever <laughs> so i'll just i just thought that, that just amused me
1: and the first song is called buck mr fullerine yeah but from what i know about him he's a fascinating individual
2: yeah i mean my my, my sort of research on these things is always a little bit sort of lazy i mean I, I'd, I'd, I'd i'd i i had that phrase or that that word those two words buck mr fullerine in, in my mind for a long time I thought well, that's a really that sounds great you know I forget where I'd heard heard it or what heard what it was and I thought that would be a really good song and so I they just had that line and so I looked it up and I looked him up and then that made me think well actually well there's some other there's some other interesting stuff here about him that I could maybe use but I mean it's not really about him at all. it's just I'm just using his molecule <laughs> as, 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 a, as a means to write a, a sort of a love song really I suppose that's all that's all that one is about
1: Okay, yeah, I couldn't. I thought it was more about him.
2: No, it's not. No, it's it's just about okay. two. It's about two scientists, you know, having an affair in the laboratory, but they're just using, you know, it's this all using this terminology. But I refer I, there's, there's, a, there's a few references in there. I, I try and because he one of the things he invented is, is this sort of geo, geodesic structure, which is what the geodesic dome. And then I thought, well, who's who's oh, that, that rings a bell? Who's got who's used geodesic dome in a song and it's fad gadget there's a song by fad gadget it goes under the geodesic dome and so i mentioned fads and gadgets in the lyrics and i said because oh, i want somebody i want somebody to say oh yeah you've said that you've said that because of fad gadget and no one's yet the only real thing about uh, richard but mr fully himself is that i've i've kind of stolen one of his or two of his phrases one of his phrases and one of his molecules to use as a premise for making a record
1: <laughs> so how to love someone is is very personal or it seems very uh, personal.
2: Yeah, I suppose I, I suppose it is. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not really in anything that Im, immediate that's just happened or anything like that. But um, yeah, I suppose it's quite an, an, an honest thing to say. I mean, I, I imagine probably lots of people think that uh, about themselves.
1: So what was going on when you wrote that?
2: Nothing, nothing particularly romantic for me at that at that time or or otherwise. I mean, look the because I was looking after my dad at the time of, of, of lots of the songs on this record from that time. But this one is, isn't, that one isn't really particularly about anything. You know, it, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of an imaginary scenario, I suppose. But I do, I do, I feel a bit like that sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, that did, that did hit home. When I to it. <laughs> Two lips and a top hat.
2: Ah, now that is, uh, that's kind of about the, the, the feeling of, of I mean, I've done quite a lot of touring with bands, and and it's something that I I got to think about because you, you know, it's it's fantastically lucky to be able to go and travel to to places, but I would always there'd always be a point where I would be I'd be so kind of tired or or you know, and I would just want to just stay in the hotel in stay in the hotel room and not go and walk around and wander around and look at look at the fantastic city that that, that I was in. And it's happened to me several times. And you just get the feeling, you know, you know, and you feel really guilty because you think, oh, I should be out there going and looking at, you know, all this amazing culture that, that, that I'm here. I'll never get the chance to come here again. And, but I have actually missed, I've completely missed a couple of cities because of doing that and, and just, just thinking, right, I'm going to, I'm just going to stay in my room. I don't really want to do anything. And so that, and the last time that occurred to me, it was, it was on tour um, a couple of years ago when we, we went and did some gigs with John Howard in in Germany. And so I, I thought of the, the, the lyrics to that song in a hotel in Berlin, although I had quite a nice time in Berlin. And I, I didn't do the staying in my room thing there. <laughs> but there was this hotel in the foyer of this hotel, with these, there were these lilies. This, the smell of the lilies hit you as you came in, and there was, there was a top hat sitting on top of a piano. Or maybe it wasn't a piano, but just on, on top of a table with tulips in it. And I just thought, and I thought, tulips in the top hat. And I did my thing. I wrote that down or I spoke it into my phone and, uh, and waited for it to become uh, a song. You know, So it's about, you know, the, just, the, just the feeling of wanting to just not go and not, not do anything and not go and just be kind of holed up for a while.
1: What are some of your favorite places to go and play?
2: Ah, difficult, difficult, really. I mean, some of the best places I've been in, in the world. I mean, I think Japan is my favorite place that I've ever been simply because it's just so, so different. You know, on lots of levels. I mean, you know, I mean, there's places I, that I haven't been, which I'm sure perhaps would be as different or or, or differently different. But you know, going, going to America is fantastic. And I love that, um, and I've probably been there more more times. But it's kind of still what you expect. America is what you expect it to be, or was what I expected it to be. But the first time I went to J- Japan, it was totally not what I expected it to be at all. And that that's that's what really made me remember it and stuck in my mind. It's been place that i would you know would love to go again and playing playing there was good we did, only we played there with with um went with death in vegas a couple of times and i went with doc allison once um did some used to play a bit of guitar for her france was always a good territory for death in vegas to go yeah. to and we did a really nice gig last year um paper Nut one well, me on my own as paper Nut cambridge did a really nice house concert there in paris last year which was organized by some great people and uh we kind of took the label over for, for, for um, one of the independent label markets that happened in Paris, and we kind of organized a, um, a gig there the same weekend. And so we had four, about four of us from the label just playing at this, uh, this great house concert. Really nice. Cool.
1: Yeah, I wanted to talk about the label. How did that all come together?
2: Well, that was at the, at the time of, of me having got the first paper on like Cambridge album together, and then was also talking with Robert Rotifer. Uh, who's whose album I'd worked, played the drums on and worked on, and then we also had our friend, Rawley, Rawley Long, and we we three decided that we wanted to try and set up a label as a, as a means to to be able to release our three records under some kind of umbrella of identity. You know, we, we rather than just the three of us trying to individually find someone to release it or or you know, or do do three uh, self releases. We decided we would try and. Form a label, and we 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 got some other people interested too. Alex Hayton uh, did an album with us as well, and we just, I mean, we didn't do anything official in terms of forming a company or anything like that. We just say we just said, right, well, this is what it is. It's got this is Garden or Records, and we called it that because I I kind of said it would be great to call us call it something French and and uh, give it a little bit of an air of what people will think, well, what where, what is this and is it a French label? Is it you know? And it made me think of things like going back to punk and indie, but there was a, there was a label called St. Pancras records, which I think Squitty Politi's first singles were on. And I just thought, okay, St. Pancras records. Well, if it was in, if it was France, it, could, it would be Gardinor. And, um, I thought of, I thought of several different French, uh, ideas for titles, but garden was the one that the other, the other two guys said, yeah, that's, that's quite good. We'll, we'll call it that. And then as a kind of back reverse engineering of the to- of the name, we worked out that God, that Paris or Gardinor is the kind of midpoint between, uh, Vienna, which is where Robert is from and London where we are. And so we said, yeah, geographically it's the, it's the fulcrum of, uh, of all of us and it's all connected by train and everything. And that's, yes. Yeah, so we, that's, that's how the name of the label came about.
1: Cool. What else is going on with the label right now?
2: Well, we've had a, had a, had a, had a sort of fairly busy, I suppose, First part of the year, so we had a few releases in the last few months. So we had Jack Hater's album, and we had a couple of singles by a band called Those Unfortunates. I mean, the way it works is that we—it's we, it, kind of a collective. It's not really—it's not really a commercially operating label in the sense that we kind of sign people or or, or fund uh, projects or anything like that. Basically, everyone everyone funds their own release. It's like it's like lots of self releases happening. Sometimes at the same time. Sometimes we have we we have uh, releases happening the same day or the same week, which I think a p- perhaps a more a more sensible label would be saying we shouldn't we can't do that. So we kind of there's kind of an open door policy to Frederick. but it, it's kind of always it's all been kind of people who are connected in some way to us. It's been you know p- friends of, friends who who have been involved in some of our some of our own records or people that we know directly. So we quite often get contacted by people who are looking for a label for a project, and they 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 assume that we must be some kind of you know much more um, accomplished business in some way, and, and they you know, and I have to reply to them and say, well, actually, we know we're not. I think you might be looking for somebody a bit more uh, <laughs> commercially minded than us. But I mean, it was still, it, it's it's just it's just go, going on. You know, we, we've got a few more things. In the pipeline, I think Roberts Roberts going to Roberts just released a, a German language album, which is not on Garden Law, but I think he's going to do an English version of it, which I think we'll we'll, we'll have at some point, which is great. So it's a, it's a great record in German. I don't really understand the words, obviously, <laughs> so I look forward to the English version, which, which will be great.
1: What else do you want to say about the new record? What about No Pressure? I like that one.
2: Well, that's the that's the one that's I guess most most obviously dedicated to my dad my dad passed away a couple of years ago and uh i, I you know spent a lot of time looking after him in, in his final illness. and so that i wanted to write a song that was kind of like one of those father to son ad- advice songs which actually is not you know the, the lyrics in that song there, there isn't really anything in, in those lyrics which were anything that my dad directly ever said to, to me if you know what i mean I, I, it's almost like me Saying those things to myself in a way, inspired by what what he was what he was like because he you know he was very easygoing and uh, you know gave me lots of encouragement with everything that I've done, and he was quite you know quite philosophical about life and everything, and I suppose that's what I'm trying to to be as well, in lots of ways. Yeah, I think the, the only the only line in that song, which which my dad ever did say, and it's actually not it's a reported. It's not him that's saying it, he's, he's telling me about what an RAF officer said once to him. <laughs> it's the very last line, which I'm not even sure if I can repeat on air, on Skype, <laughs> which is, it, 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 he um, he told this story that he was uh, he was in the RAF and he was working, they used to work in a, um, a unit called Airfield Construction, so they were building airfields, but my dad was kind of working in the admin in the office and he, he had to type out some orders, some instructions for the unit one day And they were were written in this really kind of patronizing way or in in some kind of, they were very, very simplistic and very, you know, sort of impolite in a way. And so my dad went to his superior officer and he said, do you think I should maybe change this and make it a bit less, you know, abrasive and patronizing? And the officer said to him, the thing is button, you've always got to cater for cunts. And And I think that's what my you know my dad always remembered that that piece of advice, <laughs> and so that's the la- the last line in that song. Which for the rate for the radio, it- it's just in the fade. You know, you don't think you can even hear it in the in the, the digital version that's coming out. Where you won't hear it, but uh, yeah, that tickled me. You can beat that out if you use that bit on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh yeah, Kalinda.
2: Ah yes. Well, that's another that's another thing. That, that that came indirectly from my dad. He he woke up one morning and he told me he'd had a dream about this beautiful woman called Kalinda, who, and I didn't know who if if it was anybody that he's that he knew or you know or whether it's someone who's who's just from his imagination. And it again the name just sort of stuck in my mind. And then I look I googled uh, I googled it to see what what it what the name was or if there was anybody called that. And there is there was a character in um, that series called the Good Wife, called Kalinda, which I know that my dad used to like, used to watch that. So I don't know whether it could be her that he's thinking about. But it's also the name of a, a name of a dance. It's like a I think it's like a, a slave dance. I think. But yeah. So again, it was just it was just one word that captured my captured my imagination, and I thought, well, like, that's, that's I need to do a song like that about that.
1: What were you listening to when you were making the record?
2: Ah, nothing really that I can specifically name, you know, that, that, w- that would have directly influenced it, I don't think. I mean, I, I I listen to lots of things which is the same music that I've listened to for, you know, 40, 50-odd years, you know, so I'll always stick on a bit of, I don't know, Lou Reed or something or or uh, some kind of 60s, 60s pop. I think I probably heard there's an album by a guy called Vaughan Thomas, which I'd heard for the first time. That would have definitely been in the period of of this recording. And he's somebody that made one album, and it was produced by Mike Bat. Friend friend sent me a, a link to the uh, to the album, and I heard it. And that's a really brilliant sort of seventies, about nineteen seventy three or four pop record. But yeah, so I, I I heard that for the first time, and I was listening to um, Andy Lewis and Judy Dyble, Summer Dancing. So I, I know I know both of those. Uh, as friends and I, their, their album came out last summer, which was been about the time that I was doing lots of the recording for this. But one of the, one of the biggest things that happened on on this record is that what I, what is now known by me as piano day, because there's obviously there's lots of piano on this record that's featured more, more perhaps than I've ever done before. And it's kind of, it all kind of happened as a, a bit of a fluke really, because there's a, there's a studio in Hackney and I know, um, the engineer their shooter he often has short notice he often has downtime or, or uh, cheap cheap studio time cancellations and things and there was one weekend and he said oh i've got some there's a free day so i said yes i'd love to come there and then i had to think well what what can i do you know i booked the time and i thought well, what can we do and i thought about maybe doing some overdubs of something but they've got a really fantastic grand piano there and i just had suddenly had the idea of phoning up my two piano playing friends uh, so Emma who Emma Winston who'd already played on some Paper Nut Cambridge stuff before and Terry uh, Terry Miles who who's in Go Kart Mozart and it was also in Death in Vegas uh, on keyboards and I got in touch with both of those and we we went down for four hours to this place and just put loads and loads of grand piano like I think on four or five of the tracks and it completely transformed them and it transformed the album in a huge way I think because all of a sudden tracks that were that were kind of strummy guitar tracks. But as soon as the piano pianos went on, I thought, right, well, I can take all that away now because the piano is really carrying it. I think it really, you know, as I say, it really transformed it. And then after that day, I had it. I had the bug then, and I thought, right, well, I'll. I'll uh, when I had a, the next couple of songs got ready, I got Terry to do a bit more, and I got another friend, Luke Smith, to play some some piano on a couple of the others. So yeah, that that's, you know, I guess that's one of the things I wanted to say about it.
1: <laughs> so you. Produced and recorded the latest Go Kart Mozart album.
2: Yes, yeah, I produced it with—I mean, with with Lawrence and and Terry. But yeah, so I'm, I'm, my my credit is is a production, and I played played quite a lot of stuff on it.
1: What was it like working with Lawrence?
2: Great, yeah. He, um, I mean, we did it over over quite a long time because some of, some of the tracks predate the previous Go Kart records. So you know, so some of the tracks have been around for quite a long time. And yeah, we would just work on and off sometimes around at Terry's, sometimes at my place, sometimes in, in studios, we we, we would always try and go to a studio to mix, to do the mixes so that we could hear things loud and whatever. Um, But yeah, Lawrence would come down and and do, do lots of the vocals at my house and really inspiring to, 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 to work with that, with that, with that band. I think, you know, that that gave me a real, you know, really kind of keeps you pop sensibilities up to, up to scratch because there's, there's, you know, there's so much. Lawrence has such got this, such attention to detail about not wanting to waste a moment in the music. You know, and not wanting to have any spare spare seconds where there's where there's not much happening. Or you know, and it, it, lots of the work is, is doing that is tightening things up and and you know stripping things down and just sort of sh- you know shining it all shining it all up. Anything
1: else going on with you at the moment you'd like to plug?
2: I produced a record for Trevor Burton who used to be in the move and it was an album that came out for record store day. Uh, and it's basically an acoustic record. I think there's two, there's two original songs on it by him. And then the rest is covers. And he's done, he's covered a lot of modern Americana. So there's a Vic Chestnut cover and, um, mountain goats and things. And he's, he's, so he's done a lot of modern songs. Um, so that, that was the last bit of production that I did. And then I, I'm, I'm involved quite a lot now in, in some library music. So I did an album, I did an instrumental album last year, uh, that was, that wasn't on Gardu Noor and it was a Mellotron. Um, every, everything was based on Mellotrons and the, and the sound libraries of, of uh, the software Mellotron that you can get. And so it's every, everything apart from drums and a bit of bass. And so that came out last year and it ended up being perhaps the, probably the most successful paper, nut Cambridge thing that, <laughs> that there's ever been. And also I always joke joke fact that. It's because I'm not singing on it. That's the reason. That's maybe that's nature's way of telling me stop stop trying to bother to write these these words or anything. But anyway, so I've just finished volume two of that. So so I'm just in the in the throes of, of starting to get that one ready to be pressed up. So that will that will come out to probably towards the end of the year. Yeah. So that's that's the that's the nearest I can get to a plug.
1: <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, well, my last question is always say you had stolen a space shuttle and were flying it directly into the sun, (laughs) what would you want to be listening to?
2: Ooh, okay. Right, okay. The first thing that springs to my mind then is Lady Friend by The Birds. But I'd quite like it to be sort of edited so it's a bit longer than it is. It's a really short song. But at the end of it, when it starts going into the bit at the end where it's looping around, just have that going you know, as I, as I, as I burn up, I think that's the one. Excellent.
1: <laughs> well, that was really cool. I'm fascinated by when songs come to you in dreams. Some of my best songs have come just at the verge of falling asleep. where you have to like muster all your will to jump out of bed and record them or write them down because otherwise you're going to lose them forever. Uh, Dave Goukazian from The Elevator Drops and the Texas Governor once told me that his songs are him trying to recreate what he heard in his dreams And he's written some really fantastic pop songs. I recommend checking them out. So yeah, the new Paper Nut Cambridge album comes out on June 29th. And that's really rad that the vinyl plays out from the center on one side to go along with the title, Outstairs, Instairs. And definitely check out their earlier work. Uh, That second album really was one of my favorite records of 2014. I'll be posting some show notes with some of their songs at www.thecounterforce.net. And it's worth checking out Ian's label, Gare Denor. Raleigh Long is a really fantastic songwriter, and they do a bunch of cool stuff. So I'd like to leave you now with my favorite Paper Note Cambridge song, Accidents Children, from the second record. I just love the laid-back feel of this song, coupled with its killer hooks.